0: I'm Adam Lay, Senior Editor at Private Equity International. A lot has happened in the last two weeks since we recorded our last Spotlight episode looking at how the coronavirus crisis is affecting private markets. In today's episode, we're going to do a mini-tour of the world. We've asked our senior editorial teams across New York, San Francisco, London and Hong Kong what the biggest stories in their respective markets have been and why they should matter to private market participants. We'll bring you the latest on deal making in China and why Asia's biggest private equity market could see a rebound in deal making in Q2. We'll also look at why sustainable assets in infrastructure are a must right now more than ever. We'll get the lowdown on what's going on in agriculture, healthcare, real estate, private debt, and VC investing, and much more. Before we start off, our editorial teams are filing their reports from living rooms and kitchens as the lockdown continues, so please excuse any poor sound quality you may hear. First up, here's Chris Wachowski, editor of Buyouts based in New York, who says GPs are trying to make changes to their fund documentation due to the crisis.
1: Uh, I'm hearing a lot from limited partners and consultants that GPs are coming back to their investors asking for term amendments to allow them to essentially adjust to the pandemic lockdown environment. Basically, GPs are looking for more flexibility in their existing funds to do things like buy the debt out of existing portfolio companies, expand the scope of their investment mandate to seize on opportunities created by the downturn. And also, and I actually wrote about this recently, GPs, mostly buyout GPs, are asking LPs for the ability to recycle proceeds from investment sales back into portfolio companies that need additional support. Most buyout GPs do not have the ability to recycle proceeds into existing portfolio companies. Many of them can recycle proceeds into new investments. But recycling into uh, existing investments, this seems to be a friendly way to basically find more capital to support portfolio companies that need it. Other ways that GPs can get more capital would be to raise new funds or even special purpose vehicles focused solely on supporting existing investments. But as we know, uh, fundraising is really hard to do right now. And I'm not even clear that LPs would be interested in uh, you know, a vehicle that reinvests into existing investments. GPs could also ask co-investing LPs to kick in more capital to existing investments. They could turn to the private credit world, of course, or even um, you know, preferred equity providers. But um, that sort of capital can be expensive and, as some sources mentioned to me, even uh, onerous. So recycling proceeds seem to, seems to be a relatively investor-friendly way to support existing portfolio companies. The risk here, of course, is taking proceeds that LPs were expecting to get back as distributions at a time when liquidity is tight and distributions have dried up because there's, there's no exits happening. And then using that money to support a company that might ultimately fail, which then becomes, as the saying goes, throwing good money after bad. And so that's not really a, a winning move for a GP. And LPs, of course, are concerned about that. And so when these, when these types of amendment requests come up, this is the sort of
0: thing they're thinking about. That was Chris Wachowski in New York. Next up is Sarah Pringle, editor at PE Hub, with the latest on the private equity healthcare market.
2: Like all industries, healthcare has seen most leveraged buyouts and sale processes put on hold or shut down. In the short term, any non-essential healthcare service, think physical therapy or really any elective surgery, has been hit with massive patient cancellations. Leading to the same kind of cash flow problems that many retail providers are facing, while many other healthcare companies are facing supply shortages. The difference with healthcare is that, unlike entertainment or tourism, it's a fundamental need. P firms are fairly confident there will be pent up demand when the dust settles. Some areas will even gain more attention as a result of the pandemic. One example of this is TPG, which just agreed to buy Lifestance Health and a deal sources told me was valued at $1.2 billion in almost all equity. The deal also represented a high teens multiple of EBITDA, which, on the surface, looks to be a pretty hefty price in the middle of an economic crisis. Fact is that LifeStance is in the business of mental health services. And unfortunately, the belief is that job loss and life loss resulting from coronavirus will have lasting effects, whether that's increased levels of depression or addiction. In other words, providers of behavioral health services could be longer-term beneficiaries of the crisis. Many other healthcare businesses are fundamentally sound. And so there's a broad view that even if it takes time to make up for lost revenue, patients will come back when the crisis is over.
0: That was Sarah Pringle in New York. Next, we cross to Alastair Goldfisher in San
3: Francisco, who's got the lowdown on what's going on in the world of VC. The COVID-19 pandemic and the economic slowdown it has triggered has also brought with it a lot of uncertainty as to what venture will look like by the end of the year. So we've looked at how current conditions are impacting certain sectors and where VCs are putting their money in. One area that we've noticed which has drawn a lot of attention is telemedicine. Telemedicine is nothing new. It has been around for decades. But widespread adoption of virtual health had been slow prior to now. And that certainly changed drastically amid the coronavirus outbreak. Telemedicine saw more usage in March than in the last 10 years. It has not only created an opportunity for patients and providers to use more virtual services, it's also opened up potentially more deals for investors to look at. Take, for example, Boulder Care, a venture-backed company in the Series A stage that provides a digital platform for treating opioid addiction. And then there's eVisit, a patient engagement platform in Arizona, which has raised three rounds of financing so far. These and other companies are certain to garner a lot of attention from VCs. Cheryl Chang, a GP at Blue Run Ventures, told us she believes the future of telemedicine will grow in such areas as obstetrics, ophthalmology and dermatology. It'll certainly be interesting to see whether more venture money flows into the sector this year.
0: Thank you, Alastair. Next to Asia, China is where the coronavirus crisis was first detected at the end of last year. The country has started to ease some of its lockdown restrictions, but as our senior reporter Alex Lin reports, deal-making suffered a blow in Q1.
4: I've been looking recently at Bain & Co's to China Private Equity Report 2020, which has some interesting figures for Q1. As we might expect, private equity deal value was 55% lower in the first quarter than the same period last year, but what surprised me was there were just 7% fewer deals. I spoke to Hao Zhu, who co-authored the report. And he says these strong numbers include a backlog of transactions that were still being negotiated in January, but just got over the line. There was a significant drop off in deals in Feb. But in March, we saw a good number again of small deals completed by early stage VCs, who are generally a bit more flexible when it comes to deal making. Now the reason we saw a big drop off in deal value was because the larger PE firms were a lot quieter in Q1. Zhu expects to see this pick up again in H2 at the
0: earliest. That was Alex Lin in Hong Kong. Next up is Bruno Alves, senior editor at Infrastructure Investor, who says there's an opportunity for sustainable investing in the real asset sector.
5: So uh, recently we've been discussing what impact COVID-19 is having on the notion of infrastructure as a sustainable asset class. We waded into this discussion with an opinion piece that's actually been one of our most read pieces recently. And in it, we essentially argue that all infrastructure post-COVID-19 really needs to be sustainable uh, infrastructure. And by that, you know, we, we don't mean that everyone has to drop what they're doing and start building solar panels or, or wind farms. But whereas it, COVID-19 is an unforeseen black swan, climate change is well understood and is seen as, as a major risk. And we argue that an asset class that is being sold as, as long-term and resilient uh, really can't afford not to be fully prepared for climate change. Hence, why we're arguing that all infrastructure portfolios going forward uh, really need to be uh, long-term, sustainable portfolios. And we think that's, you know, that that's part of the upside. I mean, infrastructure emerged after the global financial crisis. Is, is one of the of the winners and it kind of defined the asset class as this long-term asset class capable of generating relatively uncorrelated stable returns and we think that if the asset class takes the opportunity to uh, really become sustainable then it can also benefit post-covid-19 from being seen as a, a truly long-term sustainable climate-ready asset class
0: that was bruno alves in london Now, if there's one asset class that impacts all other asset classes on its own, it's arguably private debt. According to private debt investor, senior editor Andy Thompson, there's a buzzword that's been doing the rounds of private debt in recent weeks, and that word is dislocation. Here's Andy.
6: This really came to our attention when KKR announced that they were rebranding their Special Situations Fund 3 as the Dislocation Opportunities Fund, with the idea being to take advantage of the way in which uh, the pandemic has really battered bonds and loans. We've seen other firms following suit, so we reported yesterday and exclusively that Albacore Capital Group were managing around $750 million for a dislocation strategy. They're aiming to take that up to about a billion. Also, uh, we reported that ARENA investors and other GP are also targeting dislocation. They describe it officially as asset-backed distress, but dislocation cropped up in, their, uh, in, in discussions of this fund. Um, ARENA is run by uh, Dan Wern, formerly a, a bit of a big shot in the hedge fund world. He ran the DBS Wern hedge fund and is very well practiced in uh, taking advantage of downturn opportunities. I guess you know. From what we can make out, LPs are very keen to put capital into this area. They're pretty excited by it. It is a can be a very flexible mandate, though, both in terms of the the type of deal, which can be very unorthodox, very unusual, perhaps the kind of things that private debt investors are not used to. They can also uh, straddle public and private markets. This is interesting because although LPs are very interested in it, they're finding that one of the limiting factors is the number of uh, managers that are actually sufficiently experienced in investing across public and private markets. There's just not really that many of them. Also, different structures are involved as well. You know, uh, kind of traditional private market fund structures may not necessarily be suitable for this kind of strategy. Should it be open-ended? Should it be closed? Should it be something in between? This is an, an issue that's being wrestled with. And as well as LPs having to be flexible, the GPs are also having to be flexible in terms of you know, how they go about raising the capital. What we've heard is that GPs wanting to get one of these strategies off the ground are tending to talk just to a core group of trusted LPs that they've built long-standing relationships with. If they tried to sell it to, you know, too wide an investor base, it would just take too long. And, you know, too many of those LPs would probably not be able to move quickly enough. Uh, so this is one where you just carry along a small group of trusted LPs and just raise the amount of capital that you
0: need. That was Andy Thompson in London. One sector that's proving to be a shining light amid the chaos is the food and food production industry, as Binyamin Ali, editor at AgriInvestor, reports.
4: The pandemic's impact on the agriculture asset class has certainly not been a wholesale story of doom and gloom so far. Farmland is a segment of the market that institutional capital invests quite heavily into, and global farmland prices have continued to hold as they have done so historically during economic downturns, which is why the asset class has often been championed as an uncorrelated asset. These assets also have a yield component given their production of commodities such as crops, fruit and veg, dairy or animal products, but this is where the picture gets a little more complicated. Producers whose main customers are retail supermarkets are doing well during the lockdown and benefiting from a global shift towards home food consumption. Those that have the benefit of being vertically integrated with packaging, frozen food, and logistics capabilities are doing even better and could well emerge from this crisis as net beneficiaries. Suppliers into restaurants, hotels, and schools, however, are the ones making headlines for having to dump their produce because a significant portion of their client base has just evaporated. But even here... Given food status as an essential requirement, it's certainly possible for them to reorder their supply chains and target retail markets. But this hasn't been easy as the trucking and food delivery networks are just not built to deal with the level of demand we're seeing. That being said, no government that can help it is going to look the other way as segments of its national food production infrastructure face ruin. Which is why we've seen state aid rules in the EU relax to accommodate domestic stimulus packages and is why we've seen multi-billion dollar packages for farmers in the US, Canada, as well as elsewhere globally.
0: Thank you, Benjamin. Now, when we last caught up with our colleagues at our real estate-focused title, PERE News, the name of the game was tenant to As senior editor Jonathan Brass explains, the issue is still causing headaches for the asset class.
7: If I was to pick a standout story that's crossed my desk, it'd actually be one we're close to publishing, Uh, versus one we have already published. And this one's on tenant defaults and first thoughts on their impact on fund performances in the sector. Now, to be clear, we're still very much in discovery territory with only little evidence of defaulting tenants from the sector's standard quarterly assessments. But in our report, one UK manager told us his firm had received 85% of its anticipated rent roll for Q1. And this was predicated on about two thirds of the period operating as normal. But he is fretting, He's fretting about Q2, in which many of the firm's properties will have been closed for around, probably again, two-thirds of the period. And of course, he's worried about beyond. Meanwhile, a US multifamily-focused manager told us of his surprise to have received 80 to 90% of the quarter's rents. But he too is fretting. He worries about the 20 million unemployment figure stateside and what that will mean for rents. Interestingly, though, the pandemic's fiscal solutions have also got managers believing rent losses could be somewhat mitigated. After all, $2 trillion in the US, €1.5 trillion in the EU and £350 billion of stimulus in the UK. That's a lot of money. Real estate will undoubtedly benefit from this. Indirectly, probably, though, through their tenants, but benefit they should. And central bank rate cuts will play a mitigating role as well. These are among the factors that may well prop up property values. But artificially, they won't necessarily cover up the fact that post-COVID, some tenants simply cannot carry on. So what does this mean for valuations? Clearly, it's too early to tell. But Q2's results are going to be an eagerly awaited first slew of indicators as valuers agree on their approaches to their work, for which managers and investors alike can benchmark. Of course, though, that's some months away.
0: Thank you, Jonathan. Let's wrap up things with a quick look at the distressed and special situation strategies, which appear to have experienced a boom in appetite since the crisis began. This is unsurprising given these are strategies that are likely to benefit from increased deal flow opportunities at a time when many companies around the world are experiencing distress and are in need of capital. Los Angeles' headquartered Oak Tree, for example, is reported to be in market seeking $15 billion for its biggest ever distressed debt fund, while we understand that growth equity-focused General Atlantic is teaming up with a former GSO Capital Partners executive to launch a roughly $5 billion fund that will provide structured equity and debt financing to companies hit by the COVID-19 crisis. Fundraising for special sits strategies is also chugging along, and one of the most read stories on PrivateEquityInternational.com over the last two weeks has been our exclusive on a firm called Intriver Capital, founded by two former Apollo dealmakers, who held a first close on their second special sits fund despite challenging times in the market for GPs to get out there and raise capital from LPs. So a spot of fundraising sunshine amid an otherwise gloomy market. As always, you can find more on any of the reports you've heard in today's podcast online. Just visit our websites, privateequityinternational.com, Private Debt Investor, Buyouts Insider, PE Hub, Infrastructure Investor, PERE News, Agri Investor, Venture Capital Journal, and Secondaries Investor, of course. We didn't have time today to talk about the secondaries market, but I promise we'll bring you the latest update in our next episode. And of course, you can find all our podcasts on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and Podbean. That's all for now. I'm Adam Lay. Thanks for listening.